morning, church. My name is Marcus. Uh, thank you, Uncle Tentra, for that introduction. And yes, my family is happy to be here this morning. I do not say it lightly that it is really by God's grace that I can be standing here today. And uh, I really thank you for your prayers for my family last week when I was unwell. And this week as well, and last night as well. But uh, it's been quite a journey for us, so we're very thankful for, for this family that we have. And so it is our great joy and privilege to be able to bring God's Word to us today. And our text for today is Matthew 2, 1-12. I just checked the Pew Bibles. Uh, it's going to be at 757. Yeah, so please uh, refer to that. And if you don't already have one, we would love for you to take one home. Uh, yeah, so today we will be looking at the first Christmas and Christmas is a special time of the year where the birth of Christ is widely celebrated. You hear songs of Jesus everywhere. But there are many that prefer to ignore the Christ of Christmas. They might be more interested in the food and presents, or maybe annoyed and angry at the idea of Jesus or God. Maybe they're asking like, why do I have to listen to this oppressive God? Everything about Christianity is so outdated. This is from so long ago. Why should I care? Why should I care? So the reactions to the first Christmas were actually not too different from today. There were some who saw a weak baby, but others saw a God. Some celebrated the birth of Jesus but others were angered by it. And they asked the same questions. Why should I submit to Jesus as king? Why can't I just get rid of him? So our text today will help us to consider this question. How should we rightly understand the birth of Christ? How should we rightly understand the birth of Christ? Do we see Jesus as king to be received? or a hindrance to be rejected. And a big idea for today is this, is that Jesus Christ is the promised Saviour King. And this should call us to behold and receive our King. So we'll be looking at our text in two parts. Behold our King from 1 to 6, and receive your King from verse 7 to 12. Let's pray together before we start. Heavenly Father, you are merciful, patient, and kind. In our weakness, you have sent your Son to meet our need of a King that would free us from sin. And I pray that our time today will help us to behold your Son as our King and that your mercy will soften our hearts to receive his rule for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So behold your king. So like the other gospel accounts, Matthew writes to inform his readers on who Jesus is and what he has done. But this gospel is unique because it focuses on informing a Jewish audience that Jesus is their long-awaited promised king. And what kind of king is that? So this gospel begins with the lineage of Jesus Christ. Out of many years of sin, silence, unfamiliar names, comes the birth of Jesus. 
So in like, like in Genesis, we, we are seeing something amazing coming out of nothing. God's good light appearing in darkness. This is a king that appears despite our darkness. And then he goes on. He tells us that Jesus comes through a miraculous virgin birth. The sin of the fathers are, are not inherited by Jesus. Instead, he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And through this, God himself now dwells with his people. Like we see in Exodus, God is sending a servant to be amidst his people and then saving them. This is a king that is with his people. And now we arrive in Matthew 2. So let's look at scripture together. I'll read for us. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the, where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Matthew is now taking a closer look at the prophetic kingship of Jesus by pointing us to three things. The star, the current king, and Bethlehem. The star. Matthew is calling us to behold the arrival of wise men. To behold is to pay attention to, to, to look at. So they came to Herod looking for the king of the Jews that had just been born. They were not looking for a baby prince, but a baby king. This was not a son of an earthly king, but the son of God himself. This king need not be handed any throne. It was already his. So now they were referring to this prophecy of a new king that would be accompanied by a rising star. And this is from Numbers 24, 17. Numbers 24, 17. This was during a time where Israel approached the hostile region of Moab after they had been rescued from Egypt. So Egypt was a superpower, and this defeat of Egypt left the surrounding nations worried, wary of Israel. So the king of Moab then, Balak, hired Balaam to curse Israel, hoping to weaken them. But each time he tried, God intervened and made him prophesy blessing over Israel instead. And we find the final prophecy here in Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheaf. So I see him, but not now. Behold him, but not near. Balaam is seeing a man in the future. 
and then a star shall come out of Jacob, and the scepter shall rise out of Israel. It could be referring to the same thing, that there's a man in the future being one that would be like a light in the darkness, a star, and also one that would lead Israel as a king. And we know this because a scepter was a rod that belonged to the ruling king during those times. And it represented governance, but it also represented temporal power. It was designed to be handed down uh, to the next king. But the Jews, however, were looking forward to a different kind of king. And they were looking forward to a king that would be born among them since the beginning of Israel as a people. We see this in Genesis 49. The father of the 12 tribes of Israel, Israel himself, gave this word. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now this is the king that Jews far and wide were looking forward to. From Judah would not depart, and this staff would stay between his feet. There will be a king that would never die, whose kingship would never be handed down. And look at this one. Tributes, gifts will come to him. And people all over the world will obey him. This should make us think about our passage today. The next line of the prophecy says, It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheaf. So this king was prophesied to crush the head of surrounding enemies, implying that he would be born into hostility. And unlike the temporal, corruptible, imperfect kings of our world, the Jews looked forward to a praiseworthy, immortal king that defeats their enemies and leads them to safety. So both these ideas, coming king, and crushing ahead were precious themes to the Jews because they remind them of God's saving plan, that the promised saviour king will come to rescue all that trust in him. And this promise began in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they could no longer be in fellowship with a holy God. The Bible calls this disobedience sin. And all of Adam's descendants, including us, were then born into a life of sin and separation from God. And this sin could not go unpunished. So the punishment of eternal death in hell awaits all who stay in separation with God. But God in His love made a way for us to return to Him. In Genesis 3.15, it writes, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So he promised that Eve would have a son that would crush the serpent's head while receiving a wound on his heel. So there's a permanent wound and a temporal wound. So since then, God's people waited for this serpent crusher that would bring them back to God. And over time, this promise was either reminded of or expanded on. And in this prophecy, we see an expansion that this son would come from Israel and be their king. And the crushing of the forehead of Moab is ultimately fulfilled 
when Jesus crushed the head of death, when he took our punishment, our punishment on the cross. He suffered the temporal wound of death and rose from the dead. So that those that trust in Christ to die in their place would not face the penalty for their own sin, but they will join in Christ's resurrection into a new life as a people united with God once again. And this is how the promised Saviour King rescues all that trust in Him to crush the enemy for them and to take their place in death. So we Christians believe that we need a Saviour. And the good news is that Christ is that Saviour who has come. And if you have not received Christ as your King, I pray that our time today will help you in your consideration. So this star, this star that accompanies Jesus' birth, tells all of us that our promised serpent-crushing Saviour King is here. And how would the existing king react to this news? So we look at King Herod. The wise man with the tributes and message should have helped King Herod see that various scriptures were being fulfilled before his eyes. But his eyes were troubled looking at other things on his own throne, his fleeting throne. Because this man was saying that it wouldn't be his much longer. It was like, you know, hearing about an upcoming retrenchment. Except you don't just lose your job, you also lose your life. So that's why he's a bit afraid. And that's how most kings end their reign when they die. And to begin with, Herod was a paranoid and dangerous man. History records him killing many of his family members when they threatened his rule. And we see later in Matthew that he calls for the slaughter of children in an attempt to kill Jesus. And back in those days when there was a more uh, rightful king, usually involved the death of the fake king or the one who's not supposed to be there. So the travelers telling him that there's a real king was exactly the kind of thing that frightened him. And it wasn't just Herod that was troubled. All Jerusalem was also troubled. Now that usually refers to the leadership of Jerusalem. And they were troubled because if Jesus was here, no one needed to fear their authority anymore. And that's because they used it to twist and uh, manipulate scripture for their benefit. And all this would soon be exposed if this was true. In John 3.20, he writes, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And this fear was upon Herod and his leaders. So Matthew is specifically noting for us that Jesus was born in the time of King Herod, a known dark time for his Jewish readers, because he wants us to know that this star-marked king came to his people in a dark, hostile time to build on the theme to tell us that Numbers 24 is being fulfilled. And this ties in with a special place in biblical history, Bethlehem of Judea, our next point. The chief priests and scribes were gathered to help determine the birthplace of Jesus, and they recalled the prophet Micah, who wrote about Israel's exile, oppression, and then restoration by a coming king from Bethlehem. 
So Matthew 2 records the gist of it, of what they told Herod, but we can find the full prophecy in Micah. I'll read from verse 2 to 3 for us, from chapter 5. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. So Bethlehem was generally unremarkable as a place, even too little to be named as a full clan. But Jews understood its significance in redemption history. So there's a place in the outskirts of the Star Wars universe called Tatooine, and its people were poor, demoralized, but fans would know that they should pay attention whenever they see the two moons of Tatooine. Because despite its unimpressive appearance, it is important in the Star Wars canon. This is a place where key characters are born, where hope is found, and then found again. So likewise, Bethlehem wasn't remarkable, but it was significant. Matthew is calling us to pay attention. He's saying something is happening. So in the days of Judges, sometime back before this account, God's people had no king, and everyone did whatever they wanted. God's priesthood was corrupt, given over to lust, and they starved God's people. It was a dark time for them. But it was during this time where Boaz, a descendant of Judah, met Ruth, a Moabite widow in Bethlehem. In a time where Jews sinned greatly against their God, where the land of God was like a godless land, the Bible shifts its view to a Moabite woman coming to faith from outside. She comes, God brings her to be with his people. The account of Ruth shows us that where the world saw darkness, there was a light of hope in Bethlehem. And this couple would become grandparents of an important baby, David, born in Bethlehem, the next light that would appear in the dark time of King Saul. Saul had a good start, but he was soon consumed by his own sinful ambitions, and God's people suffered another dark time. It was then when David, descendant of Judah, born of Bethlehem, defeated Goliath, a young boy defeating the enemy of God's people, while the worldly king remained helpless and far from the battlefield. And King David would restore God's presence in the midst of God's people by bringing back the Ark of the Covenant. All this and more made David Israel's most important king. And this prophecy of Micah is taking place years after the death of King David. So it's telling God's people that it's happening again. That God's people will be given up, will go through a dark time, but a king from Bethlehem will gather and shepherd his people and this time forever. And that is why Matthew opens this chapter by telling us that it is precisely here at this time that Jesus was born. It is in this darkness of King Herod that God's people looked towards Bethlehem the prophetic dawning place of gospel hope. 
Jerusalem is at its darkest, the king was evil, the government corrupt, but above Bethlehem, a star, a promised star, and in a manger, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, the new greater final David, was here. In 2 Samuel 7, it reads, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is God speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 2 Samuel 7, 12-14. Like David, Jesus would journey from Bethlehem, Jerusalem, but he will conquer more than Goliath. He will conquer the sin of his people. The kings of this world are like Saul, helpless, unable to save even themselves from sin. And where David brought God's presence to be with God's people, Jesus would be God's presence with his people. Where David gave in to the lust of his eyes and the comfort of his home, Jesus would overcome Satan in the blistering wilderness. Where David dies as a man, Jesus defeats death as God and will lead his people forever. Jesus is the greater son of Judah and the scepter will not depart from his feet. So let's behold, behold our promised saviour king. Herod looking powerful on his throne and Jesus like a baby. It might look a bit like today where a godless world seems in, in charge. And, and like the Jews, we may feel that our Saviour might not save us after all. But Matthew 2 tells us not to trust our physical experiences when it comes to spiritual matters. We take God at His word. As they could not see the lineage of Judah being preserved to bring about their king, we also cannot see many things and many ways that God continues to work. We must not mistake silence for absence or waiting to be punishment. Our job is not to decipher God, but trust Him. And out of this long silence is about to come the sound of joyful worship. And so will it be for all who trust Him. And we should remember the cross that on the darkest day, Evil raged, but it still yielded unwittingly to God's plan. And in that same way, darkness only makes the stars shine ever brighter. This text affirms that this world makes it hard to see Christ as king. But scripture shines light to grow our faith and expand our trust. So behold, your promised king is on his throne. Fix your eyes on him and trust him. So as the reality of Jesus, the promised king, dawns upon us and those in the text, there's only two responses. Do we receive this king or do we reject this king? And let's ponder on that as we look into our next section. Receive your king. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, 
Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So Herod knew that he wasn't really supposed to be there as the king, that he was kind of false. Why? Because he wasn't chosen by God. He couldn't lead Israel to obey God, largely because he hated God. So historically and symbolically, he knows he doesn't belong there. So he begins the next best thing, to kill Jesus. So all this research of getting the guys over to read scripture, it was not for genuine consideration. It was to find the fastest way to make it all go away by killing Jesus. And like the Hebrew babies that were murdered by Pharaoh to end God's people in the past, we now see Christ, the greater Moses, taking on the full fury of the worldly king but also kept safe by God. And Christ, this king, would then lead his people, not in a physical exodus, but a spiritual one, from death to life. Herod believed the lie that it was feasible, it was doable to destroy God's plan and remain king. And sometimes we, we believe that lie as well when we insist on being our own kings. We might even join Herod to employ scripture to serve us instead of using it to instruct us to serve God. We twist it to protect or explain away our sin. But no scheme is ever feasible against God's plan and His word. Being made in His image, but wanting to spread our own image, our values, our ideas, Instead of God's, this is how we reject God's rule and insist on ours. By default, God's rule is like a foreign object entering, uh, entering us, like, like when we get a cut. And our sin is like a, our immune system whose nature is to reject this rule. And so we don't actually struggle, especially in this age, we don't struggle with lack of information. We struggle with sinfulness. And in this case, we don't trust that Jesus is a better king than ourselves. So imagine, what does authority look like to you? You might think immediately of a cruel dictator, a large, cold figure. And if I ask you to exert your authority, maybe towards an interior designer that doesn't respond to you or whatever, you might see yourself being stern, uh, unkind, or mean. So 
the world has taught us that authority, apart from ourselves, is just bad. And maybe even asserting authority is to be mean. Authority is bad. But that's not true. There is good authority. When parents use their authority to train their children towards good, or when it ensures fair play in a sport. So I want to share with us two reasons why the authority of Christ is good. And the first one is, is right there in our passage today, that he is patient toward us. You see, Jesus didn't come to judge immediately. He could have come as a powerful king, but he came as a baby. Herod still had time. But instead of using it to repent, he plotted Jesus' murder. He was right, though, that Christ would judge him, but he was wrong about when. Christ would not use his adulthood to take Herod's throne. He, He used it to call people to repentance, even Herod, and give of his own life so that all may live. But Christ will return once more, not as a baby, in the fullness of glory and power to judge us as our king. So consider that he hasn't come back yet because he's waiting for you to turn to him. This is not an impatient, merciless authority. So as we live in a similar extra time as Herod, will we turn to Christ? Or will we, like Herod, mistake patience for weakness? The next reason why this authority is good is because this is an authority that gives his life for us. In Romans 5, 6 to 8, it says, For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus had full authority over his life and he chose to give it to us because he loves us. The cross tells us that Jesus died for us who put him there in the first place. This is an authority that gives and forgives. The soldier that pierced him, the thief on the cross, Saul who killed Christians, were all forgiven. I was forgiven. And this church, the church, is the gathering of the forgiven. The authority of Christ is hope to the hopeless. And that hope is on display every week at the local church. The cross shows us that the authority of Jesus is loving, forgiving, and tender. Herod mistook Christ to be merciless and cruel like himself. So will we make Herod's mistake of rejecting Jesus, the promised Savior King? Or will we receive him as the wise man received Christ? So Matthew is making a point to tell us where the wise man came from. He could have just said wise man came, or maybe man came, but he said they came from the east. So in Singapore, you would know that the east and west have reputations. Some believe that the east have better food and convenience. Some don't. The Bible has similar reputations, but the east was not the best site 
it was the bad side. And not because the food was bad, but because the Jews would know that Adam and Eve were exiled east from Eden. And when Cain was exiled, he went further east. And then Ham, you might not know him, but you know his dad, Noah. So Ham was not, not so good. And he, he had his descendants stretch further east. And then Lot left Abraham and went eastward as well, as far as Sodom. And later we see Israel exiled eastward again. So the east was associated with exile from God's presence. It represented the exiles, Gentiles. It represented godlessness. So these men were from the east. And to kind of make it worse, they were wise. And in that sense, because the wise men were learned men, scientists, uh, sometimes they were astrologers. And so the tendency for these group of people to be associated with like uh, black magic and all that, it's pretty high. So they are from a godless Eastern culture. But they may have lived uh, in a godless land, but they were not God-forsaken. They somehow had the book of Numbers. I guess they did have Micah, but they had, they had stuff. They had God. The knowledge of Numbers 24 tells us that they have obtained ancient scriptures, studied and trusted in it. And then they risked their lives before Herod so that they may find Jesus. Herod and his leadership, on the other hand, had centuries of godly heritage behind them, easy access to scripture. But Matthew is telling us that it is the pedigree Jews that reject Christ and the outcast Gentiles that are receiving Christ. He tells us through the genealogy, this passage, and many more, that Christ has come to save us all. He has come to save the world. We see that from the star that led them from their home in the east. The east was not too far for his star, not too dark for it to shine. So God doesn't play hide and seek with creation. He sends Christ, the true star, to lead us home. And like the wise men, we live in exile from birth. And for those of us not yet submitting to God's rule, we continue to live in the spiritual east today. But Jesus is the shepherd that goes into the darkness to bring his lost sheep to himself. And by the time they met Jesus, it would have been around two years old, a two-year journey. This meant around 700 nights of showing these men the path to Christ. Friends, we have a patient and merciful shepherd king. And maybe some believe that, but can't believe that he would love you because you wouldn't love you. Well, we thank God that Christ isn't you. But you may be right on one thing, that the mercy of Christ is unbelievable. In Psalms 103, verse 11, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Psalm 103, 11 to 12. 
this should make you emotional and rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And we see this when the wise men fell to the ground upon seeing Christ worshipping and presenting the gifts of gold and spices. So these men were sometimes referred to as kings. And it might be because of these gifts, because they reveal hints of royalty, that they were following the customs of gift-bearing on royal visits. And these were all expensive gifts, not just the gold. The spices were seen to be as valuable as gold because of its rarity. So what's happening here? The Jews are being reminded of the Queen of Sheba giving tribute to King Solomon. In 1 Kings 10, it reads, Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great quantity, precious stones. And there never again came such abundance of spices as the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. The glory of Solomon's kingdom prompted this queen to give lavishly and never again came such abundance. So this was a significant event in Jewish history. And across scripture, we, we actually see this pattern of the world giving to God's people, willingly or unwillingly, from Abraham's plunder of Pharaoh to Israel's plunder of Egypt and to this time of King Solomon, which was a bit unique because we see godless nations giving abundant wealth to God's king. But we know that Solomon was not the everlasting king after all. He sinned and died like the rest of us. And there never again came such a king like Solomon. Until now, Matthew is telling us that it's happening again. That a new king has come forth from Bethlehem, receiving gifts from foreigners like Solomon before him. But Jesus would receive more than the gold and spices that Solomon received. Because one day, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord, willingly or unwillingly. The new and greater Solomon is here. The greater promised son of Judah is here. Jesus is the true promised king that should be feared above all worldly kings. And we must receive Christ in worship. But what is worship? So I do find sports fans quite helpful to describe a life of worship. Their social life, work life, holiday life, it's all scheduled around matches or club events. If your spouse is a football fan and wants to go to London, you, you should know what's up. Sleep and money all readily on the altar. The same way worship is not just chanting your club's anthem, worship of Christ isn't just singing. It is the submission of our lives to something larger than ourselves. For too long, the Jews have been caught up with the worship and fear of human kings. Their lives were lived in submission to lesser kings. Matthew is calling them to submit to Jesus instead. 
The wise men, in contrast, gave up their cultural religion, embraced Jewish prophecy, prepared a lavish offering, went on a dangerous journey to give allegiance to Jesus. Their suffering for and worship of Christ began when they acknowledged him as king and left their homes with a high risk of never returning. The joy of receiving their king was worth it all. And this worshipful suffering finally breaks out in rejoicing when they saw Jesus, the new king. And we should, we should pray that this will be our story when Christ returns for us. Counting the cost, but also considering it all joy. And the cost of following Christ today can look like turning from the ways that grieve God and live a life pleasing to Him. For our non-Christian friends, one of the first costs would be to depart from your religion or your worldview. It can be costly, might be humiliating, cost nonetheless, and a cost that is worth it. It also looks like spending time in his word and prayer. And we, we must know who our king is and what he expects of us. There's just no shortcuts on this one. And time is a precious commodity today. Will we give it to our king? It also looks like taking time to be with his church, to rejoice with those who rejoice, and to weep with those who weep. And it also looks like searching for biblical wisdom when gray areas appear. When we say, oh, Bible never say, you know. So what happens then? Are we open to speak with others about an upcoming decision? Well, we should, especially when we don't feel like it. And when we trust his rule, we trust that justice is always served, either on the cross or in hell. So that means we do not need to despair in the failure of earthly laws, nor do we need to seek revenge. Trusting in His rule should call us to pursue reconciliation with others, to follow our King. Sometimes it costs us money when we need to resign from our jobs because of obligations to practice evil. For some of us, it means taking an expensive cab home or putting off a holiday to flee from sexual temptation. And for others, perhaps the hard work of confronting inconveniences or disappointments to attend church regularly once again. And this is what it looks like to submit to Christ as our King and reject the world's kings like money, sex, power, or comfort. If we have given up nothing in our following of Christ, and if our greatest joys are absent of Christ, we should soberly ask ourselves if we have mistaken Christ to be our follower instead. And as the wise men didn't travel as individuals, the church is God's design for us to make this costly journey together. 
It is how he gives us extra shoulders to bear the load. It is through other members that he encourages us to trust in him or to be here today or to help us give us a lift to church. It is through others that he accompanies us on difficult days or prays for us when we are unwell. And if you're not a member of a local church, I encourage you to trust in the good design of the Lord, of your King, that protects, nurtures, sustains, and gathers his people around Christ. As the wise men lay down their riches for Jesus, would we also be moved to submit our lives to our promised Savior King and receive him in worship? So we begin our time this morning by asking if there's a right way to understand the birth of Christ. And our text shows us that there is, that the birth of Christ is the birth of the promised Savior King. The star in the east tells us that good news, that, that this King has come for the whole world, for us. God has promised us a King, and He is here. We must repent from the ways where we have looked away from true glory or trusted our own rule instead of Christ. And if you have not received Jesus as King, I pray that this morning helped you to consider the mercy of our Saviour. If you would like to know more, speak to any of the elders, deacons, or the person that brought you here. We would love to help you to know Jesus. Friends, Jesus Christ is the promised Saviour King. Let us behold and receive Him as our King.